This is the SciDev.net podcast for science news and views on global development. With less than 100 days to go before the most important climate change summit of the decade in Paris, we talk with two of the five candidates who aspire to chair the IPCC, the UN scientific body tasked with gathering all scientific knowledge on climate change. It's fundamentally important that the scientific issues as well as the social issues, the value issues, uh, the ethical issues all get combined. But the unique value that's added by the IPCC is to summarize what we know and what we don't know about science. We meet two inventors who plan to power rural communities in India using batteries charged with rice husks. So we're using biomass power because well, firstly, India has a huge surplus of crop waste. In, in all of the Indian states, there's over 200 million tons of agricultural waste available every year. So if you use all of, those, all of that waste to power, you know, for, to generate energy, you would meet 17% of um, India's energy needs instantaneously. And we discover how looking into the history of Lassa fever gives scientists hope for the development of a vaccine. The virus itself is endemic in, in West Africa, primarily in Nigeria, Sierra Leone, Liberia and Guinea. It appears to be very ancient, at least a thousand years old. Welcome to the SciDev.net podcast, where we explore the world of science and international development. Well, today we kick off our podcast with the voices of two scientists that will play a crucial role in the future of global climate change response. Our multimedia producer, Lou Del Bello, is here to tell us more. Hello there, Lou. Hi, John. So, Lou, who are these mysterious scientists and why are they poised to make a big difference? Well, they are two of the five IPCC chair candidates who are competing to become the head of the world's most authoritative institution in the field of climate change response. Election will be held in October, and over the course of September, we'll talk to all of them and report their views on how negotiations should benefit the most vulnerable. Our first two guests are Nebozia Nakichenovic, but we're allowed to call him Naki. He's an energy system expert, originally from Montenegro. And Chris Field, he's a climate scientist from the US, already involved in the work of the IPCC. Okay, so what's the contribution that they are hoping to make to the climate change debate? And maybe given 2015 will be a milestone for international negotiations, could this be the right time to rethink the whole role of the IPCC? Well, over the course of its history, the IPCC has attracted many critics, particularly because among a pool of peer-reviewed studies, it also collects non-peer-reviewed research. That's what they call grey literature. And generally, now that reality of climate change has been established and the science is robust enough, some are starting to question the usefulness of the institution itself. Here's Naki's response to the criticism. Uh, the, the, the task of IPCC is to put together the best science to inform the climate policies about what we can do to avoid climate change and what we can do to, uh, to adapt to climate change. Uh, and I think this is, uh, uh, it is required ever more because, um, first of all, 
this year is very important, 2015, we had a number of summits in the world. Many countries have developed INDCs, these are their, their own national commitments, uh, how to uh, reduce emissions and adapt. So the science will be called for, in my view, very, very strongly, not just to evaluate that, but also to see where it leads. I also asked him what's the IPCC commitment for the developing world specifically. Clearly here the urgency is the highest and I think one of the biggest requisites for being able to respond to the challenge of climate change and that can be characterized as being perhaps one of the biggest that humanity is facing this century. Uh, uh, the, the developing in particular vulnerable countries need much more knowledge and capacity building to be able to implement their own national plans. They need access to information. IPCC can provide that. And also it's exceedingly important that they have access to technology, to knowledge about institutions, as well measures that can be done to both adapt and mitigate climate change. So does that mean that the IPCC is embracing the social and economic aspects of climate change as well? Which would imply taking a political stance in the way the world deals with climate change response. Yeah, so do you think that's actually the case? Well, I'd say scientists are pretty cautious because obviously, you know, the job is to provide evidence and they are generally impartial. So Naki gave me a quite diplomatic answer, but we'll see during our series that other candidates are less cautious. Well, the role of IPCC must be pri uh, primarily to provide the best knowledge. Those are the terms of IPCC, and that's a huge strength of IPCC. And if IPCC does not do that, uh, then there is no equivalent institution, in my view, in particular not within the UN system that can do it. Uh, now, to do this effectively, I think that the involvement of the scientists and experts from the developing countries should be the highest priority. And I think this is also a great achievement of IPCC in the past, but improvements are definitely possible. Okay, Lou, so much for the scientific community, but we all know that at this point the scientific debate is settled, the evidence is there. Now the problem is to take action, of course. It's an economic issue, but also cultural and social. So it's definitely not just about science, is it? No, I agree. Um, I mean, it is about science, but there's much more than that. And Naki here is very clear on the importance of integrating the work of the IPCC with practical actions at a country level. Poverty itself leads to huge health and environmental environmental problems and on top of it blocks development. So the climate policies can be consistent with the development, but they need not be consistent. And I think this is, you know, this is actually the work of the assessment, is to identify those future development trajectories or pathways that can both bring um, bring decent living to the people who are excluded today, let's say the 3 billion who are excluded from it today, decent living to all of them over the coming decades, but at the same time that can lead to a sustainable future um, in the later part of the centuries. And Lou, do the other chair candidates share the same views? Well, they all acknowledge that development can't be left out of the agenda if you want climate response to be successful globally. But everyone has their personal views on how to integrate the two. Let's have a listen to what Chris Field, he's the IPCC chair candidate from the US, told our reporter Giovanni Ortolani. 
What would you bring on the table as a new chair of the IPCC? The chair of the IPCC really needs to do four things. The chair needs to be an ambassador for climate science. The chair needs to be able to explain climate science, including the details to the broad community of stakeholders. The chair needs to work with countries in order to crystallize a vision of the most important questions and the best way to address them. And the chair needs to be able to manage the process that involves hundreds of countries and more than a thousand scientists in an efficient, professional way. I have really proven performance across all four of those areas, representing climate science, explaining climate science, working with countries to crystallize a vision, and also managing the process of delivering robust reports. In your vision for IPCC, you highlighted the importance of science, but climate change is also a social issue. How important is that aspect to you? It's fundamentally important that the scientific issues as well as the social issues, the value issues, uh, the ethical issues all get combined. But the unique value that's added by the IPCC is to summarize what we know and what we don't know about science. That's what sets up the right conversation between the social and ethical and political dimensions and the scientific dimensions. Very often the poor are the hardest hit by climate change and the poor communities are those who are forced to relocate. What do you think about that? How can we try to change this situation? One of the things that's really important is to recognize that vulnerability is widespread and some of the most challenging aspects of vulnerability come in communities that are poor or live in places with weak institutions or uh, where inequality really shapes their prospects. Uh, being able to integrate this into a framework for effective action with science, with climate change, is one of the most critical tasks before us, and we really need to have a sharp focus on these issues of differential impacts and differential ability to respond. In the past, IPCC scientists have been accused of marginalizing poor nations. What do you think about this issue? What can we do to change this situation? There are really three key things that the IPCC can do. The first is to be ambitious about the activity of identifying and recruiting and training scientists so that we really tap as deeply as possible into the global scientific talent pool. The second thing is really recognizing the diversity of the issues. Climate change involves dozens of disciplines, and if we just focus on atmospheric physics, uh, we won't capture the full diversity of talent that's really needed. And then the third thing that's really critical is to have an ambitious outreach so that people know about the IPCC, they're excited to work with it, and they know that if they work with the IPCC, they'll have a rewarding experience and really help contribute to solving the challenge of climate change. And uh, as chair, what would you do to boost the representation of scientists from the Global South? My experience in the Working Group 2 environment has been that a focus on creating an environment of respect is deeply important, uh, totally committed to that. And I'm also totally committed to making sure that the outlines reflect the issues where the expertise is often greatest in the developing world. And this includes things like extra value added by traditional knowledge experience with community-based adaptation, those are areas where much of the most successful and sophisticated science is occurring in the Global South. And uh, what improvements can be made across IPCC to better tackling the impact of climate change on developing nations and mitigating it? I think the IPCC has a strong record of 
summarizing the scientific information about climate change and its impacts and prospects for mitigation, I think it can do a much better job in three main areas. Uh, one main area is uh, crystallizing the issues that play out in different regions and in different sectors so that we can really uh, zero in on the opportunities and the challenges that people face around the world. A second thing that we can do better is to make sure that the communication is clear. And one of the challenges we face with IPCC reports is we're walking this tightrope between the scientific information that is most robust and conclusions that are understandable. I think that we could do a lot more to create a platform for action by emphasizing making the reports understandable. And then the third thing is really to make sure that the topics that get addressed are the topics that make a difference for people in developing countries. Uh, many of these have to do with adaptation opportunities, and many of them have to do with uh, solutions that can be deployed in a context where the primary focus has to be on inclusive, sustainable development. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure to talk with you. That was Giovanni Ortolani speaking to Chris Field, running for the post of IPCC chair to be elected in October. OK, stay with us to learn how biomass can charge batteries and power rural communities. That's all coming up later. This is the SciDev.net podcast where we put science at the heart of global development. A team of scientists in London is designing a system that uses biomass to power off-grid communities in rural India while producing biochar, a type of charcoal used to fertilise soil. The organisation Orja expects to remove 500 tonnes of CO2 from the atmosphere annually for each plant they install. They also aim to reach 1 million underserved people and to save 1 million tonnes of CO2 in the next five years. Well, we decided to investigate the methods and feasibility of this very ambitious idea, and reporter Kevin Pollock has been learning more and sent us this report. I'm Ahmed Saragi. I'm Clementine Chambon. You're both founders of the startup company Orja, Empowering Rural Communities, and I was just wondering, what is the product you're going to be uh, providing? We're aiming to build decentralized mini power plants that will be powered by biomass. And these plants will be placed in off-grid villages in rural India, where they will provide electricity and biochar. So it'll provide clean energy that's affordable to the communities, but also soil amendment to improve agriculture and boost long-term crop yields, as well as acting as a, a carbon sink. So it'll be a carbon negative technology. Kind of in a nutshell, how does the technology work? Like, how do you go from waste to, to energy? So it's a hybrid technology based on pyrolysis and then combustion. So the waste is transformed into a solid, a liquid and a gas. And that solid is biochar, which is um, a natural and safe soil amendment. And then you have a, a gas and a liquid. So those are, the, are stored in tanks and then they're um, burned in a, in a combustion engine, which is linked to a generator, which is used to generate electricity. And that electricity is stored in batteries and then distributed to the communities via a microgrid. And does it matter which kind of biomass waste you're using? So we're designing the system to be feedstock flexible. So we're initially aiming at rice husk, which is actually one of the most difficult feedstocks to use because it has a high silica content. But we're aiming to use a variety of different feedstocks that are available in Uttar Pradesh, which is our pilot location. So that can include rice husks, uh, rice straw, wheat husks and wheat straw, um, sugarcane bagasse and other um, crop wastes that are found locally. 
is this something that you want to kind of bring to a rural community and let them learn and adapt and be able to, to implement themselves? Well, in the longer term, yes, but our business model is uh, that we as a company, Urja, will uh, build, install, and maintain these plants. And each of these plants ha- will have a capacity of a, roughly about 75 kilowatts of uh, energy. And then we will look for uh, local micro-entrepreneurs who will be people from the community. It could also be self-help groups of women. Uh, we'll arrange uh, finance through microfinance institutions for them and it will require us to train people who will work at these plants. Each of these plants would probably require about four to five uh, people. We would hope that in three to four years we could walk out and you know uh, we want to keep the model scalable so we can walk out and you know uh, install more plants in the next district and the next district and the next state. Uh, so eventually yes uh, that would be our goal and mission to let let it be a community-owned project and they can run it themselves. And you said that the the capacity is 75 kilowatts? Yeah. How much energy is that? Like, uh, can you give me an example of what could that power an entire village? Yeah, so um, based on energy demand analysis that we've conducted in our pilot location, each of these villages roughly has about 500 households, which is composed of about four or five family members. And then there are some local businesses, very small local businesses. So each of these plants, which has a capacity of 75 kilowatts, would be able to serve four to five villages, which are in the vicinity of two to three kilometers. Uh, so we'll have to build a microgrid for that last mile uh, linkage to uh, these premises. So we're talking pretty simple, basic energy services initially. So we did a, a market research survey in, in May where we interviewed over 50 different households in different villages around the district that we're aiming to pilot in and um, found out what people's energy needs are at the moment based on you know use of traditional energy and then translated that into their current use if they had access to electricity. We sort of mapped the typical low profile that, profile that you would get if you electrified it now, which is a lot less than say 75 kilowatts for that size of population. But then obviously as people acquire different appliances, so fans for example, then their energy use would increase. This was based on maybe one or two bulbs in the household, but then you know there's also mobile phone chargers, that kind of thing. And then you know as Ahmed mentioned, we'll be aiming to electrify local businesses as well, which would require a continuous supply of electricity. So 75 kilowatts is a you know reasonable scale for you know more than the very basic energy services of about a thousand households. And why is this? Uh, type of energy solution better than other renewable energy solutions like solar or wind? So we're using biomass power because, well, firstly, India has a huge surplus of crop waste. So I think in, in all of the Indian states, there's over 200 million tons of agricultural waste available every year that in surplus. So that's not including everything that's already used for feeding animals, for example. So if you use all of those, all of that waste to power, you know, for, to generate energy, you would meet 17% of um, India's energy needs instantaneously. That's the big picture. For our purposes, it's uh, we're working in you know agrarian communities where over 75% of people are engaged in agriculture as their primary source of income. So it's not just about the energy; it's also about the biochar production, which is very you know a central part of our mission. In terms of the advantages or disadvantages compared to other renewables, so we're you know pretty much at cost parity, if not cheaper than other options like solar. Solar is obviously beneficial in the sense that it might have less maintenance, but it's not typically used for round-the-clock energy provision. And obviously it has also limitations, and if it's very mountainous, for example, then there's no way that you could use, it's just less feasible to use solar. But we're, we're aiming to use biomass because of the fact that we'll be able to uh, have a continuous supply because there's just so much of the waste, which will obviously is, is obviously important in the case where you're powering 
small or medium enterprises that require a continuous source of electricity. So, for example, a refrigeration of medicines or just businesses that need you know, their lights on all night because they're by the highway or something. And then, so uh, at least in Uttar Pradesh, wind is not really an option. So, yeah, um, but whereas there are other states on the western coast which probably could use wind, but wind is not really an option on the eastern uh, East India. So, yeah. uh, so the, right now the market is being flooded with lots of solar lamps. But the problem I see with these solar lamps, uh, sometimes the and the host of organizations, some doing well, others not so well. Uh, but the intensity of light itself is not enough after dark to sustain certain activities, for example, studying. So yes, it does provide some light, but I don't think in terms of its intensity, it's good enough. Uh, so what we're going to provide is an uninterrupted supply, reliable supply, and uh, which is good light for doing all sorts of activities. So yeah. Where did the name Urja come from? Um, okay, so so Urja means energy in Hindi. So yeah, well, I mean we chose that um, basically from the very first week that we were working on the the idea. Which so at that point it was just a waste energy project in India. So not a lot of thought. A lot of thought did not go into this because initially it was just a project. We didn't even know at that point that this will actually become a company later. Uh, so uh, we might actually have to change our name. Uh, there's a couple of reasons for it. Uh, not that we don't like the name. Uh, we've been using it, so of course people recognize us by Urja. But uh, we found out that there are already other organizations using the same name or similar names. Uh, one to obviously differentiate ourselves from them. We're thinking about you know a name that would encapsulate some of the core things that we're aiming to do. So not just energy, but also um, women's empowerment, agriculture. That was Kevin Pollock talking to Amit Sarogi and Clementine Chambon about the social enterprise Orja. Next in the podcast, is a vaccine for Lassa fever a step closer? The answer lies in the virus's history. You're listening to the SciDev.net podcast for news and views on science and global development. Lassa fever infects between 300 and 500,000 people every year, killing approximately 5,000. Like Ebola, it's an acute viral hemorrhagic fever and is observed mainly in West Africa. However, unlike Ebola, it's not frequently transmitted from human to human. The culprit is a small rodent. Scientists are now taking steps towards the development of a vaccine, but to understand the virus's behaviour, they're taking an unusual approach. They're looking into its evolution. Reporter Ines Nastali investigated and sent us this interview. Combining science and the history of a disease can help to develop vaccines. For example, for Lassa fever, a virus that annually, alone in West Africa, infects up to 300,000 people. Dr. Christian Andersen, scientist at the American Scripps Research Institute in California, explored the origin of the disease. First of all, it's a tiny RNA-based virus. It only has four genes, so it's really very small. Um, and the thing with Lassa is that infection with that virus can lead to uh, something that's called Lassa fever. Um, and it also has very high case fatality rates, typically above 50%. And the way that people usually get infected from Lassa is that they get uh, infected from rodent excreta, uh, either in dust particles, droppings, or also certain circumstances it can probably get into the food. Pretty much every new patient that we see coming in is a spillover event. So that patient has been infected from the rodent reservoir. So different to similar diseases like Ebola, there is a low human-to-human transmission of the virus. 
Instead, people are infected by a little mouse. It's called Mastemus natalensis. And the reason why that's problematic is that it's very widespread across sub-Saharan Africa. It's probably the most frequent rodent uh, across this continent. Dr. Andersen and his colleagues therefore had a look into the region of Lassa fever. We tried to research the history of the disease or the history of the virus to try and understand how old is this virus and how and when did it spread across West Africa. So the virus itself is endemic in, in West Africa, primarily in Nigeria, Sierra Leone, Liberia and Guinea. It appears to be very ancient, at least a thousand years old uh, in modern day Nigeria, and then only quite recently, maybe within the last couple of hundred years or so, did it spread into to a country like Sierra Leone. The researchers also investigated the genome, the structure of the virus, because that helps to determine the right vaccine. What's important with, with these, you know, treatments is that they recognize very specific parts of the virus, so specific proteins that are all coded in the genome of the virus. So in order for us to develop these vaccines, for example, we need to know what exactly do those regions of the virus look like. And that's exactly what this study is, is, is providing. It's basically providing us a full catalog that gives us the information of the genetic material of the virus exactly how does it look like and how do these parts of the virus that might be recognized by vaccines, what exactly do they look like? All the research can only work if local staff is able to benefit from it. So American universities such as Harvard provide training for them. Because one thing is critical for Anderson's work. Where it's a very, very close collaboration with the local staff in Sierra Leone and in Nigeria, where we have worked for about uh, seven years now. And we work very closely with the local scientists and the healthcare workers there that are obviously critical to everything we do. And I really think that the key here is that they've arguably performed the most important part of, of this study, right? The test the patient for Lassa and Ebola, the get the samples, the take care of the patients, the educate the public about things like Ebola, Lassa and other diseases. And they also go into the community to sort of follow up on patients to make sure that there's no further spread of the disease. And the way that we have been supporting the local staff there is that over the past uh, decade or so, we have been doing this infrastructure building at the research sites uh, in Sierra Leone and, and in Nigeria, where we have installed things like solar power, for example, to, to ensure consistent power for the research and the diagnostics, and also introducing diagnostic platforms that allow them to, to, uh, to test for the, for the viruses, specifically for Lhasa and Ebola. Apart from further supporting the local staff, Dr. Andersen has another interest for further research. We were intrigued by this finding that some people were infected for a longer period, or potentially infected for a longer period of time, and we want to investigate exactly what's going on there. Do we actually see that there are some people with subclinical infections of Lhasa, and do we also see that the, the virus is interacting with the human host immune system and basically trying to evolve around? things like antibodies and, 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 and immune responses by the host. So those are sort of the next takes on, on, on this research that we're going to do. Well, that was Ines Nastali talking to Dr. Christian Anderson about a new piece of research looking into the origins of Lassa fever. Now, that's all for this month from me, John Eskam, and from all our team here in London. Do stay with us more for news and analysis on the world of science and development. Until next time, it's goodbye. <laughs>